Solomon has just begun to ponder wickedness in the world. Right? Injustice where justice should be. Unrighteousness where righteousness should be. Oppression with no one to help the oppressed. The world is filled with toil and therefore it's filled with folly. In chapter 5 now, Solomon walks into the house of God and it's no exception there. It was also under the sun where everything is vanity and a striving after wind. Don't be deceived, Solomon is saying. This folly is in the house of God also. It's there too. God's house in these days, the days when Solomon wrote, was the temple. In Old Testament times, people were required to bring their sacrifices to the temple in Jerusalem. As another part of their worship, uh, people would often make vows to the Lord. A vow was a conditional promise made to God. If God did something for the worshiper, they would do something for him. Think of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. If God would enable her to give birth, she vowed she would consecrate the child to the Lord. But rather than bringing the animals the law required for sacrifices, many people were bringing uh, the worst of their flocks instead. They were bringing the expendable animals that they could do without. And people were being rash with their vows. They were vowing more than they even planned on giving or could give. They were backing out of vows with clever words when the time came to keep them on technicalities. This is all folly to Solomon. It's evidence of a major problem deep inside of Israel. And so he's urging Israel to worship God with the reverence that is actually his due. We today, tonight, no longer have a temple And of course, the true temple was destroyed and in three days was raised up again. But we are God's house now. Those whom God has redeemed through his son, Jesus Christ, and filled with his Holy Spirit are now God's building, now God's temple on the earth. But we meet still in buildings often. We meet in a house in that sense, the house where God's people gather and what we do when we open its doors and walk through it into its sanctuary are Solomon's concern for us tonight by way of the Holy Spirit in this text. The teaching of Solomon here is heightened tonight because you and I must be mindful now everywhere and all the time of the reverence that is due to our God, beloved. When our Lord Jesus met the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he told her that the time is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That is, with God's revelation fully made known to them, so that they may worship God fully informed of His truth from the heart with their whole being. God is seeking such worshipers now. Will He find them here among us? How do we become such a worshiper? Only through Jesus Christ can we offer up to God the worship that is due his name. Let me read the first seven verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 to you. He says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, Let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. 
It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger, the angel, that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. There are four clear admonitions in this text and all four center on the fact that God is high above us and therefore deserves the utmost, highest honor and praise. The first, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. The second, be not rash with your mouth. The third, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. And fourth, let not your mouth lead you into sin. It's clear then that the point of these first seven verses is instruction. How must Israel obey when they go to the temple? The implication is that there has been misbehavior and misconduct. So everything Solomon is proving, everything gets twisted under the sun because or where toiling for gain is the goal. That's what drives people, even the worship of God. People are toiling for gain in worship or through in the midst of worship. Church is a strange thing. Some of the um, kindest, most thoughtful and caring things in my life have happened to my family and I because we're a part of the church. I've met some of the kindest people. I've enjoyed gifts of, of grace, of truth, of wisdom, of forgiveness from all of them. And yet at the same time, um, some of the deepest and most profound hurts I've experienced in my life uh, have been committed against me or against my family by church people. I've experienced some of my greatest joys and my greatest pains in life as a part of God's house. The poet, the Polish poet, uh, Czeslaw Milos wrote to the monk Thomas Merton that at one time he didn't even want to send his sons to church because, quote, he did not want to make atheists out of them. That was a long time ago that that was said. Under the sun, church can make people into atheists. That's a thought to ponder. Church under the sun then warrants caution. There's folly here too. People are hurt here. People hurt others here. But most importantly, often God is not worshipped and revered as He should be. That's the major problem that can occur when there's folly in church or does occur. Solomon is therefore not talking naively about church. He's being honest about what it's like under the sun. So we're finding in Ecclesiastes that the wise have some of the same issues with the church as skeptics do, beloved. Look at verse 1 again. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. So the priority when we gather as God's house now is not to speak, but to listen. Uh, it's not to have our say. Right? That's, that's not the priority here. It's not to make sure our voice is heard. It's, it's not to give our opinion or our demands that others listen to us and respect us and, or consider our desires. The priority is to listen. God's word, ideally, if the church is biblical, is being spoken when we gather now as God's house. Solomon says that some at this time were offering the sacrifice of fools who didn't even know that what they were doing was evil. Notice that people are doing the right things. 
Technically, they're giving their sacrifices, but he calls them the sacrifices of fools. In their very religious devotion and action, they were actually being evil. That's possible to do. We can come to church, gather with God's people, or as the church, gather as God's people, give gifts, give sacrifices, so to speak, and be doing evil at the very same time. That in and of itself calls for caution, does it not? Slow down, Solomon is implying here. Wait, seek the Lord. Be quiet before we speak. That, that's probably not a question we ever ask ourselves. Or consider when we have something we want to give or something we want to say or something we want to do. Should I be doing this? Is this right? Can this wait, right? Is this actually evil? Because anything that results from toil or that is toil makes us think it's right and pure and valid and deserved and necessary. That's, that's how our hearts corrupt our toil, right? Solomon is calling for caution at the very least. God is not after such worship. God is not after the giving of things. Remember, he doesn't need anything. So that's not going to be his goal for us when we worship. Again, 1 Peter chapter 4, 11, right? Let the one who serves do so in the strength that God supplies, so that in everything God may get the glory, even in our own serving. Serving is for the glory of God. What we do bring and what we do do is for the glory of God. So he's not after deeds that are not done now in spirit and in truth. That would be the proper way to worship now. And God is saying, whatever you would do, whatever you would bring that isn't in spirit and in truth, I'm not interested. Right? It's folly. Even if technically we're doing the right deeds. When Israel went to the temple, Solomon is reminding them, look, you're not just dropping in on a neighbor for a chat. That's not what this is. They weren't just passing time with a friend. They were going to the place at that time where the Creator had promised to stoop down to meet with them. It was holy ground. Fools were the ones bringing unacceptable sacrifices to God. Things they couldn't use for themselves, as I was saying earlier. Blind animals, lame animals, rather than what was required from them by God. Did, again, did they honestly think that was going to gain forgiveness? Did they honestly think they could get around what had been commanded, that God was so easily duped, right? And so they're coming into worship with a disrespectful heart towards God right out of the gate. If, 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 we, if our idea of God is wrong walking in the door, our worship will be off base. It doesn't matter if we do it properly, right? People were doing evil when they went to the house of God. The, and Solomon is saying, Solomon is getting at the root of that. Why is that the case? The first thing on our minds when we come together with God's house, which, beloved, I would remind you, is even more sacred than the temple. To the point where, did you know if we have strife with one another, that we haven't reconciled, we ought not to take the Lord's Supper together? This is a very serious thing. When the body of Christ now gathers in the world. But when the first thing on our minds when we come together with God's house should be to listen to what God has to say to us through His Word. We live in the day when God has spoken once and for all in His Son. We live in a fuller, more clear era. There's an even clearer Word, right? The fullest Word being spoken to us now. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. 
God said on the mountain. If we, if we were all, if we had gathered in a room for a meeting and we're sitting around a table and God was sitting in a seat there, every time somebody asked a question, wouldn't we all look at God first? Wouldn't we defer to him every time? It is no different when we gather as his people. We ought to defer first every time, in every situation, any time we're coming together as God's house. To draw near to listen is better than all that you and I could bring in our hands or say with our mouths, beloved. Look at verse 2 again. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. This is a very convicting text for a preacher. Right? How does this text inform preaching? Verse 3, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you go to the house of God, he's saying, be careful because people are always talking there. Mouths are always open, sharing their visions, sharing their desires. They multiply words, God talkers, right? I want us to notice something very important here. The context is not what kind of music we do or something, right? He's he's not making a statement that like contemporary music is bad or something or that drums are bad. He's, He's talking about the posture of the heart. Music isn't even a part of the context here or anything like that. You can be quiet and not be listening, right? His point is the posture of our hearts, even when sacrifices are being offered. There are too many people talking too quickly and talking too much when the house of God gathers or when Israel gathered in the house of God. Why should we not be quick to speak when we gather as God's house? Because God is in heaven and we are on the earth. The proper response to that is fewer words, not more. Proper recognition causes us to cover our mouths before we open them. I hear people saying all the time, in every sphere of life, I, I, just, I just have to say what I think, I have to say what I feel. If I see something wrong, i got to say it. It's such folly. It's so dangerous. It's so irreverent. Right? Who has the gall to speak up? In the presence of God. When God's people gather, do we realize who we are? Do we realize that's what's happening? That should make us pause before we speak at the very least. Right? If, what, how would you handle a person who abused husbands? How would you handle a person who beat up your wife? What would you do? Right? Do we think Jesus likes it when we abuse his bride with our mouths? And at the same time, honestly believe we could be offering pure worship to our God? It's impossible to do that without deference to God and to one another. It can't be done. Who has the gall? Like, when we talk, we're revealing our hearts whether we mean to or not. Words are never neutral. Right? They're either building up or tearing down, glorifying God, dishonoring God. They're never neutral. So who would have the gall to constantly be revealing the blindness of their own heart? Because that's what, we've, what is revealed the more that we speak. The godness of God means first the silence of people. Again, this, this, when we gather here, I, the building is not the church. You, you, 
We talk about this all the time. I think that's important in our semantics. But when we gather here, this is not a meeting hall. Right? That, that's not what this is. This is not a club of like-minded people. This is not an affinity group of old friends from school. We are the end-time people of God sent into the world by Jesus Christ to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to all nations at all times. That's what this is. Right. Look at verse 3. For a dream comes with much business. Oh boy. And a fool's voice with many words. Do we know what he's saying here and how closely it relates to us? When dreams, he says, or that which people think and dream up in their own minds, are the reason people come to church or feel the need to speak, it multiplies something. It multiplies business. And God's house has never been a business. Right? We, we say that phrase all the time. Well, I know the church is not a business. When do we say that? Usually right before, during, or after a business meeting. Right. Why won't we hear the word? You, you probably picked up on it, beloved. I absolutely despise business meetings. I hate them. I use the word hate on purpose. I hate them. Yes, there are some business-related things we need to do to stay in order. Yes, but we are flat-out lying to ourselves if we think that that's all our business is about, just making sure we keep things in order. I don't think that's a church's normal approach to its business. Right? Business isn't conducted by people just so that we can be sure we're acting orderly. That's not the tone when there's business being conducted. The business in a church is normally the way people gain and keep control. It's normally how they pursue their own interests, get their way, make sure their agendas and interests are protected, their investment, right? I give to this church. I buy stock in it. It belongs to me. No, right? Never. And so that's what business is normally about. Look, this, this is a little, this might be a little bit offensive, but why do we think business meetings have so many more people in attendance than Bible studies do? Like, it just so happens that, that that's when you're free, the business meeting Wednesday. <laughs> Come on now. It's, it's, there's, there's too much business. If there's too much happening that requires business. And the reason that's a problem is not because the pastor doesn't enjoy it. That's not important. The reason that matters is because God must be revered when his people gather. The question is, does that help that and facilitate that? Or is it cutting it off at the knees and hindering it and damaging it and threatening it? Then the questions have to be asked. The difficult things have to be explored. Too much business is a sign of verse 3. It's a sign that a church is governed mainly by the dreams and interests of people. Not the reverence of God and his mission and his calling and his appointment. An excessive business, he is telling us, leads to worry, anxiety. Makes us angry, it gets us frustrated, it, it makes us think we're allowed to talk to each other rudely and unkindly. With, with, with these demands and all the little you know, strategies going on behind the scenes and 
you do this and I'll say this and then it will force this and we'll get it's just it's it's the the point part of the point of this passage is the more people talk, the more likely they'll say something foolish that they'll regret. Proverbs ten nineteen actually. If we are to honor God as his house, we must find a way con- to conduct any business that is genuinely necessary in a way that does not give a place or provide a context for a rash, hasty, or excessive talking. Right? It's amazing how different the Bible is from our ideas about what is right and wrong. It's just amazing. When we gather, beloved, we are gathering as living stones. We are the stones of this temple. We are members of one body, the body of Christ in Moundsville. That's what we are. So if our business overrides the admonition of Scripture to let our words be few and not be rash with our mouths and to listen before we speak, if our business overrides that, we're not worshiping God with reverence no matter what songs we sing, no matter what uh, holidays we celebrate, no matter what services we have, no matter what sermons we preach. We have created a context for people to talk and give their opinions. We have the audacity to call that solemn and necessary. One thing is necessary, our Lord said. One thing. Guess what it is? Sit at the feet of Jesus and listen. Right? Not talk. The more we talk, the more folly. Period. When we gather, we need to remember our place Solomon is saying, we are on earth, God is in heaven. And our Lord Jesus carries on this teaching when he teaches about prayer, doesn't he? In Matthew 6, when you are praying, gathering to worship God, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for, this is amazing, why not be like that? Why not think that you'll be heard because of your many words? For your father knows what you need before you ask him. You don't need to talk. Right? I don't need to talk. God has ordained preaching. I understand that. But if I want to worship God, if I want to be in his presence, I don't need to say anything. My words can be very few. We should let our words be few, according to Jesus, because there's nothing we need that God doesn't already know. That's very interesting reasoning. Excessive talking, excessive business, then, are the result of a lack of faith in God to provide what is needed. It shows that we think we have to do it. We have to procure pure worship for God. We have to determine what is reverent for Him. We have to determine what He likes. We have to determine what He accepts. We have to determine what is good, and so we contribute, contribute, contribute. Talk, 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 talk. Plan, 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 plan. What would Solomon call that? Toil. And what is toil under the sun? Vanity and a striving after wind. And we just help it right along often. Very interestingly, in light of verse 2 in Ecclesiastes 5, when Jesus is talking about prayer in Matthew 6, he says in that same text, pray like this, our Father in heaven. Right? That's always the basis of my coming to him. Or what should shape my attitude and my words. He's in heaven. I am on earth. That distance should let me know There's nothing I can give here. There's nothing I can contribute because it will be tainted by my flesh. 
I should cover my mouth before I speak. There's no need for multiplied words in the presence of God. No need. We should let our words be few. So this isn't the place to talk about us. This is the place to listen. If we are anxious about our contribution to worship, what we're bringing, if we're anxious about our opinion being heard or respected, we're not poised for proper worship. We're just not poised for it. Look in verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. In Deuteronomy 23, 21 and 22, the law read, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not postpone filling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you would incur guilt. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not incur incur guilt. Sorry. God didn't make people make vows. And God knows what is in the heart of man. The end of that text in Deuteronomy is, is almost like a, you know, like a, at Israel. So, so, you know, just don't vow. Just don't do that. Apparently Solomon has observed people that make vows and don't keep them, which is an infraction against true worship. The fools are sacrificing, multiplying words, telling you all their dreams and theories and ideas and demands, etc. They make vows, right? People are normally very proud of those things. God, I will do this for you. We hold on to that. That's how we know we're doing it for ourselves and not for God. This is my thing for the Lord. I have to be able to give this or I can't worship. Why not? What changes in God when you can't do what you want or have your say? What changes in the object of your worship? Nothing. None of that should ever affect worship or our ability to worship ever. Right? But people, that, that's why when people get upset, they, they quit giving. Right? They're not giving to honor the Lord. They're, they're not giving to actually expand the kingdom. They're giving to keep their stake in a company. And if the people at the top, the board of directors, if they tick them off, they pull their money back. Right? Because God has nothing to do with their giving. Right? That you, you'll hurt a church if it doesn't do what you want. I'll quit serving. I'll quit giving money. Well, then you, you should stop now. Because you're dishonoring God every time you do it. You're being irreverent every time you put your money in the plate, right? Don't, don't be a fool, Solomon is saying. What are you doing, right? It's six and seven. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger, presumably, you know, if that was you giving a vow through what you assumed was through a messenger, that it was a mistake. Don't say that. Like, oh, I didn't, I didn't mean that I messed up, right? Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase, go back to verse 3 when he talks about dreams. When dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Solomon is talking about the way our dreams, that which is in our own minds, causes us to be hasty and foolish and irreverent for Israel when they would come into the temple to worship for us when we gather together as God's people. Sometimes people would try to back out of a vow by saying they didn't mean it or, you know, I I didn't understand what I was saying. They would try to be clever, change the terms. God responds to that in anger. So Solomon gives the final admonition or warning here in verse seven. Again, for 
When dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. That's an interesting way for that sentence to end. It doesn't feel like those two thoughts go together, but we'll come to that. It's folly, in other words. Beloved, hear this. Hear the word of God. It's folly to suppose we have to generate so much. Right? It's folly to suppose we have to do so much, figure out so much, plan so much. It's almost as if God left us with nothing. And if we're going to be successful, we have to come up with everything. Right? Have you ever gone into somebody's house and they ask you if you want a drink and you say, no, thank you. And they're like, well, or like, like a, a grandmother's house, bless their hearts. Are you hungry? No, I'll make you a sandwich. Right? I, well, you realize that's often what we're doing when we gather as God's house. I, I didn't ask for that. You don't have to bring it. Right? It's almost like you bringing it is more about you than it's about me. So keep it. In our culture, though, we always have to be moving from less to more. We realize that, right, about our own culture. You, if you have less, you always got to be moving towards more. Right? There's always need for more, more of whatever it is. There's always more over the horizon that we have to get to, which means we're constantly doing what? Whether it's secular or spiritual, although the divide is often harder to find than we think, we're constantly looking for and listening to people's visions, right? They do that in the world too. I've had an epiphany. I've had a revelation, right? Um, we're, we're always looking for new things, right? You can look in the uh, marketing department of any business and it's constantly changing because people that you're trying to give your product to or sell your product to are constantly changing. So marketing's always changing. We're constantly looking for and listening to visions. We're looking for new things, multiplied slogans and words to do what? To generate action. And then you read Ecclesiastes 5-7 in the midst of all our talk and planning and strategies. When people's opinions and preferences and ideas, when their dreams, which is what those are, and all the talk that springs from them grow many there is vanity, period. That's a biblical truism. But God is the one you must fear. That, that is powerful. What is the connection with that phrase, but God is the one you must fear, and the first part of the sentence? Nothing is said in the first part of the sentence about fear. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. This isn't fear, by the way, as in terror or dread in Ecclesiastes. This is fear as in awe, as in reverence, as in recognition. Go back, if you would, for just a moment to 3.14. Same idea here. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people might fear before him. That people, God does what he does in the world, that people might stand in awe of him. Not of us. That's the connection. Right? That's the connection. The church of Jesus Christ does not gather so that we stand in awe of each other. So that we would be amazed at our own words and our own ideas and our own gifts and our own contributions. That is not what we gather for. We're not here to realize each other's potential. 
or to make sure we're able to give something or we're not here to stand in awe of each other. Look at what they do. Look at what they've done. We're not gathering as God's house to stand in awe of each other. We gather in God's house to stand in awe of God or as God's house to stand in awe of him. We don't gather to be amazed at our own words and ideas and contributions and talents and accomplishments. And churches become monuments to people's accomplishments. When God is the one we're meant to stand in awe of. When God is the one that is meant to move our hearts, beloved. And you, you do realize, that's, that, like we are talking this morning about chaos, that's what Jesus is going to do when he takes over a place. He's just going to ruin everything. Right? He's just going to say, no, we're not going to do that, we're not going to do that, and we're going to take that away because I am front and center, not you, right? Not me. God is the one before whom we're to stand in awe, beloved. We gather to stand in awe of Him, not each other, which means more of us is not required for true worship. Less of us is required for true worship. We should come in here relaxing, ready to behold the majesty of God, not anxious. Therefore, our dreams, our opinions, our words must decrease so that he might increase. It's folly for us to think we have to say and do so much. It's folly, beloved. Hear the word of God. Why do we think so highly of our planning? of our talents, our skills, our discernment. Why do we think so highly of these things? We are not meant to stand in awe of each other. We're meant to stand in awe of God. And that well never runs dry. You'll never exhaust the awesomeness of God. It, 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 It has to temper a pastor, right? Right, who's always thinking about what has to improve. No, God is sufficient. Jesus is beautiful. God is here with us. He's he's promised to be in our midst. We're not going to drag him down here with our stuff. We're not going to coerce him in here with, with, you know, better this and better that. That's not the way it works. He's not a tribal deity. Right? He's, He's not like this... Just like Zeus, you know, you just, you make, you know, kind of don't mess up and the gods will be nice to you. It's just, it's, beloved, it's, it's, you understand that the root of that thinking is a denial of the gospel. It's a denial of what thinking, of, 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 it's a denial of what actually brings God near to people. Right? It's, it's, it's a denial of what actually gains a person access to the throne of God. Again, we aren't going to bring him down by making him notice us. Right? My, my kids don't have to do anything for me to be crazy about them. And I'm a sinner. Right? I just, I just love them. Just like you just love your kids. Right? Think about that. Right? I, I, I don't need them to accomplish anything. It doesn't mean I, I want them to have miserable lives. That's not what I mean. I'm just saying I don't... I just love them. You know? doesn't that's not why i love them i don't love them for what they're doing for me again i love them before i knew their gender i love them when my wife told me she was pregnant 
with Isabella, our first baby. Same with Sophia, same with Gianna, same with Carmine. I love these people with ferocity before I knew what they looked like. Right? Before they had done good or bad. How must God love us, Bill? You understand? You don't have to come in here anxious, ready to contribute. Just wait. Pull back. Listen. Right? Listen. This is holy. Right? Don't think you can make holy with your hands. Do what God says. Listen. It's holy and righteous and good. We don't have to make vows. We don't have to do that. We don't have to come up with things. So, if that's the case, be quick to listen and slow to speak. The more we speak, the more we reveal what's actually in our hearts, which means, according to the Bible, the more words, the more vanity. Right? That's what's in there. When we gather, the Word of God, spoken in His Son, has to have preeminence. Right? It has to have preeminence. That's... Just, just so you know, as a matter of, oh, okay, that's why we do it that way. Normally, nine times out of ten, if we're going to do something that, that isn't um, deliberately Godward in a service, I'm not saying it's evil, but I don't put it in the middle. And the reason I do that is once we get our affections up towards God, we're reading the Scripture, praying, singing together, opening the Word together, I don't want anything of us to get in the way of it and like grind it to a halt Say, okay, now we're going to focus on a person. Now we'll go back to focusing on God. I don't like to do that. I try not to do that. That's why, like, if you have a Mother's Day thing or a Veterans Day thing, I like to do it before or after, not right in the middle. I don't mean that. I don't do that because, like, that's the way I like it, and I just want to be annoying and change things. I I really think that once our our lives are constantly distracted, when we gather in this place, I, I see you for the most part for two hours a Sunday. Over half of you I see for one hour a week. Right. I, I don't. It's, it's not the time to stand in awe of each other. It's, it's just not that time. Right. Go, go to a, a football game or a basketball game to stand in awe of people. They'll amaze you or a softball game or a golf game or a tennis match or whatever. Right. That's that's the time to stand in awe of people. This is not. This is not. Beloved, God is so worth all the focus and all the attention and everything we do when we gather We ought to want the focus off of ourselves and onto Him. Let Jesus bear the weight of being the center of attention. He's amazing. He's amazing. When we gather, the Word of God has preeminence. It's there He's revealed Himself and revealed His promises. This is the basis for all true worship then. What God has done, what God has vowed, what God has promised, what God has sacrificed, what God has given. That's the basis. That's the center. That's the essence of pure, holy, biblical worship. When we insert ourselves into that, we corrupt it every time. Every time. There's only vanity. So how do we become a people who worship God in purity? Right? This passage speaks of coming to God and Contrast puts people into two classes, foolish and wise, right? How do we become wise in our worship then? Ecclesiastes 5 here is begging for somebody to save us, right? It's, it's begging for it. He's telling you, do you realize how vain you are? How unwilling you are to keep your word, 
right? How much you talk, right? Me, you being us, right? Not you and not me. But you realize how much you say and how much you... Ecclesiastes 5 begs for a Savior. We're learning that God desires a certain kind of worship. How are we going to pull that off? Right? We are of the earth. He is in heaven. How in the world would we know how to worship Him properly? Right? It's begging for a Savior. All we have in us is vanity. The book of Hebrews, and I'm almost, I'm almost done here. The book of Hebrews speaks about worship under the Old Covenant in Hebrews chapter 9. According to that arrangement, the arrangement of the people of Israel, or that they were under in the time of Solomon, Hebrews writes in Hebrews 9, gifts and sacrifices were offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation, Hebrews 9, 9 and 10. Under the arrangement Solomon and his people were under, that was the case. I believe that hints, by way of connection here, that text hints at why in John 4, Jesus told the woman at the well that God was seeking true worshipers. Now, bear in mind when John 4, when Jesus, what time it is in history. It's still the Old Covenant. Jesus has not given up his life yet. When he's speaking to the woman at the well, the law, the covenant is still in force. And what is God doing in the midst of all that worship? He was seeking true worshipers during that era. True worship, that pure and reverent worship God desired then, I believe, was not ultimately possible under that old arrangement Hebrews 9 is speaking of. Solomon was instructing Israel then mainly, look, you're going to have to worship by faith when you come. Because you're not pure enough to bring sacrifices for all the right reasons. You're not wise enough to not make vows you should make. You're going to need to worship by faith. I think that's what he's implying here very heavily. Rather than looking inwardly at their own selves and their own contributions. And everything that they could bring. Whether it was a right sacrifice or not. Under that system could not cleanse their conscience enough to worship perfectly. In other words, if a conscience isn't clean True biblical worship cannot happen. But when Christ appeared, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say in Hebrews 9:11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, our sacrifices, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That is why we read later in Hebrews 10.14, For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Beloved, All that is needed for us to worship God purely and perfectly has been provided for us by Jesus Christ. All of it. Only through Jesus Christ can we offer up to God the worship that is due His name. Now, in this era, under this arrangement of the new covenant, all the terms and elements needed for pure worship are not what we bring and contribute, but what has already been brought and contributed by Christ Himself. We can come without doubt now. We can come without fear. We can come without anxiety. We can come without our own words and sacrifices and vows. 
what Israel needed to look towards to worship God rightly or to hope of it, we now look back to because it's been provided. God desired that his house would be a house of prayer for all nations, of worship, of honoring God. Ecclesiastes 5 foreshadows what must happen in the heart of the worshiper for that to be accomplished. When God sent Jesus to provide redemption for the world, he made provision for pure and reverent worship to take place in every nation on the earth. That's every ethne. That's every people group in the world. Right? It's not just talking about the continents. He ended, Jesus ended the era in which worship could only take place in one fixed location by means of sacrifices and gifts and offerings and vows. And through Jesus Christ has made it so God may be worshipped wherever his spirit is present without the need for sacrifices, gifts, offerings and vows. Now the truth of what he has done, again what he has vowed and promised, that forms the basis of all our worship. All you and I need to do is come. That's it. That's it. Our contributions are not necessary. We only need to cover our mouths and stand in awe. And now that our consciences have been cleansed by Christ, anything that could have held us back or kept us from thinking we had to do more than just believe by grace through faith, all of that's been removed. Every reason for doubt. Every reason that would make you Tweak what God had prescribed has been removed. Jesus Christ has made us perfect, beloved. And you say, but but I'm not perfect. God said you're perfect. So you worship based on that. Right? Doesn't mean we don't sin. Right? Doesn't mean we're sinless. It's speaking of God's declaration about us legally, forensically. Let true worship flow if the gospel is true. Right? Let the church worship God in purity because the gospel is true. Get out of the way and let Jesus shine. Right? Church should facilitate such worship every time it gathers, regardless of the reason. Who we are and what God has done determines why we gather, not what we have to accomplish. We don't, we'll stifle true worship. We'll stifle pure worship with our dreams, our visions, our business, our ideas. Me, me, me. Look at me. Right? Stifles it. Can we hear the word? Can we hear the word of God as his house? When Jesus speaks to the woman at the well in John 4, he's pointing out discontinuity between worship during the Old Covenant and after the Old Covenant. John 4, 23 and 24, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Right, talking about how the temples, the arguing over where the temple should be, that's when Jesus says the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Apparently they weren't there yet. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth, not with the things of the earth. 
or of the flesh, I should say. The kind of worship God seeks is only possible then where Jesus has purchased salvation. Where there is redemption and sins are genuinely forgiven, righteousness is imputed, perfection is granted as a gift of His grace, and consciences are cleansed, now we can worship in spirit and in truth. One way to make it so you can't bring a bum sacrifice is to get rid of the need for bringing sacrifices and just put it all on Jesus. Pure worship takes place wherever and whenever in the world the salvation of Jesus has come. So listen, let us be a part of this. Let us not stand in the way of it. Not here. Not us, beloved. Let us taste and see that this is good. It's better. Let us put our hands over our mouths and listen and rejoice because it's finished. It's finished. Rest. Tend the lot God has given you. Leave to Him all the heavy lifting and worship Him purely in spirit and in truth. Jesus has paid for everything, beloved. Not just the forgiveness of our sin, but the performance of our righteousness, including our worship of God.